there used to be a saying that a woman's name should only be in the newspaper three times when she's born, when she gets married, and when she dies. That's what a good woman does. But I would argue that if your recipe gets published in the newspaper, that's a very good fourth reason. I'm Delia Colon, and this is The Zest. Citrus, seafood, Spanish flavor, and Southern charm. The Zest celebrates cuisine and community in the Sunshine State. Today, we're exploring a time period that was only a couple generations ago, but in some ways, it feels like centuries. Before food influencers and YouTube chefs, there were the cooking gurus of the newspaper women's pages. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Today, we're exploring a brief yet important chapter in America's culinary history. Between the 1940s and 1970s, most major American newspapers had a women's page. Yes, that's what they actually called it. Among the sections devoted to sports, business, and so on, there was a section devoted to so-called women's issues. Family, fashions, furnishings, and, of course, food. University of Central Florida journalism professor Kimberly Voss researched women's pages for her book, The Food Section, Newspaper Women and the Culinary Community. The book was first published in 2014, but it remains as fascinating as ever. I recently spoke with Dr. Voss. In our conversation, she explains how newspaper women's pages came to be and why they went away. She also shares why these sections mattered, how their editors were viewed by the rest of the newsroom, and how women's sections editors paved the way for the food writers of today. My first book was this one, which will be 10 years old next year, which is the food section. It is about these amazing women uh, who covered food news from the 1940s through about the early 1970s. As a reminder, most newspapers had a women's page back then, what we now kind of think of as lifestyle news. And it was really the only place that a woman could work at a newspaper. And so while they were largely segregated at the time, just to women's news, they made the most of it. Wow. Okay. You're blowing my mind already because my first (laughs) full-time job was at the St. Pete Times, now Tampa Bay Times. And if somebody told me which sections I couldn't, couldn't write for... I think I would have something to say about that. So you said the 40s through the 70s. What was it about that time period that made it fertile ground for women to be writing in this section of the newspaper? Much of it was because of World War II. So the women's pages of newspapers started really in the 1880s, but it was really more advertising, how to get stains out of your clothing, very basic home news. But during World War II, women could leave the women's section and write for all the other sections of the newspaper. So when they got moved back after the war, they had a new definition of news. They'd seen things. They really saw how they could approach even soft news with a little bit more hard news perspective. Okay, so we'll get to the food, but what were some of the other topics covered in the women's section? And was it called the women's section? Yes. Sometimes other historians will say it was the so-called women's pages, but it had that in the title where you'd see the sports section or the news or editorials, it was called the women's section. I mean, there was no so-called about it. 
more interesting, I think, than many historians have given them credit for. They're known mostly as the four Fs, family, fashions, food, and furnishings. And that's treated as fluff, but if you think about it, that's part of your everyday life, right? What you eat, what you wear, where you live, your family. And they also snuck in some hard news occasionally because they knew that men weren't reading it. So early stories about the need for daycare, uh, pay inequity, uh, domestic violence, those are often the women's section because they would put it between, say, a recipe and a fashion shoot. It was really a, a pretty smart way to get women in their communities to start thinking about what was happening because they weren't alone. These were things that just weren't talked about in the hard news sections. And so almost every section I looked at was a mix of things that were very traditional, say maybe aimed at more of a, a mother or a homemaker. But there was a lot of interesting news also within these pages. Oh, I love that. That's so subversive. It's kind of like <laughs> you go to a sporting event and in the public restrooms, there will be a flyer about where to turn if you're experiencing domestic violence because exactly. men aren't going to see it. It was that kind of approach. They were so smart at what they were doing. That's so good. Okay. And then what happened in the 70s that caused these sections to disappear? A lot of it was kind of a lot of social and gender change that was happening throughout the 60s. There was kind of this outcry of the women's sections being sexist. And if you really look at what they were doing, the sections themselves were fabulous. But many women's liberation leaders, people were, you know, were marching for women's rights. So one of the first things that happened was that newspapers started to say, okay, well, we're going to get rid of then the women's section. And in theory, women were going to get to cover everything else. Sports, editorial, you know, front page sorts of things. It did not happen in practice. And so the hard part was that these women's sections turned into lifestyle sections and were almost always then edited by a man. So these women really lost their jobs because of the women's rights movement, which I think was very hard for many of them because they certainly thought that way. They wanted women to be empowered and to do things and, and still respect homemakers, uh, which was a big part of their readership. But yeah, they lost their jobs by the mid seventies. Wow. Man, a lot happened in 30 years. Let's dig into those three decades and what was happening between those pages. First of all, who were the editors? You said that the women lost their jobs. So were they primarily women writing and editing those sections? Always. I think I came across two male food editors in everything that I looked at. And I looked at more than 100 newspapers. And so those, those two are only one because he was also the sports editor. And the second one was because he was married and they would travel together and do that sort of thing. But they came from different backgrounds. Many of them did have journalism degrees. There used to be something called home ec journalism. You could actually major in it. And so they were being trained because the idea was if a woman went to journalism school, she knew she probably couldn't get a job in most parts of the newspaper. So she got a home ec journalism degree. And so, you know, if you think of the second part of that term, economics, I looked at the curriculum and they took hard classes. <laughs> you know, because if you think of a recipe, right, as something where you have to get exactly right, the economics of that, being specific, being exact, those things were incredibly important. Now, there were a handful of women whose kind of kids went off to school and they had the whole day at home now, began writing for the women's section. It was very common to have a uh, like a mom column. So sometimes they would write about things that were going on in their neighborhood, that sort of thing. And several of them ended up on the women's pages because they had to support themselves. Wow. Okay. 
I have a ton of respect for anyone who's writing <laughs> recipes. And I actually just finished reading the novel Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garmus. It's about a fictional female chemist in the 60s who started hosting a televised cooking show. But she approached it from a scientific perspective. So the people you're talking about are sort of the real life version of the character Elizabeth in the book. So what types of, were they just recipes or can you tell me some examples of what might have been in the section? There were lots of recipes and I always bristle when I hear people say it was just a recipe because I think we do communicate through recipes, right? If you're a very good cook, you might not give out your recipe because that's you know, that's your special thing. Or you're very appreciative when someone says, I really like that. And I'm going to share that recipe with you. One thing that was very hard for these women, particularly in the 1950s, was advertising companies. They were trying to get recipes with their brand name product, which was kind of a free form of advertising. And it almost never worked. They had a very high ethical standard and they did not get pushed around by advertisers. But th these recipes were often in the early... 50s into maybe the early 60s were very hyper local, right? It would be Florida's key lime pie, where you would make sure that you don't put green food coloring in there because that's not really how it works, but that's what tourists like. In Milwaukee, it was German food, so it would be like German potato salad. So it was very regional in that way. As we moved into the 60s and we came out of the Cold War, it was often patriotic to say we ate nationally. So you start to see the food editors sharing across the country the different recipes so that we all ate like Americans. Interesting. Florida key lime pie. So did you come across many Florida newspapers in your research? Yes. So if you kind of think of the post-World War II era, is really when Florida grew. Servicemen's Pier was in Miami. And so all these Midwesterners realize how nice it is here in winter. I'm one of them. <laughs> yeah, same. Uh, same. And so um, you saw lots of growth in Miami. In fact, the Miami Herald was a statewide paper back then. And so you had lots of advertising. And remember that the size of a newspaper is determined by the advertising that you sell. And the food editors never got enough credit for that because there's a whole lot of advertising in their section that paid for the other parts of the newspaper. You know, you think about, for example, the biggest section of any food section, including in Florida, is always the week before Thanksgiving. There were some newspapers that brought in nearly a million dollars in advertising in a week or two alone. And so, you know, it really was a, a budget issue, too. They had high ethical standards, but they helped pay for a whole lot of things in their newspapers. The St. Pete Times was a very significant food section, as did the Orlando Sentinel. Fort Lauderdale News had a really good food section. The Sunset was just kind of taking off back then. But yeah, it was really amazing how Florida did all of this in the 50s and 60s, or what one editor called the golden era of the women's pages. So were they respected? They were respected in some ways and completely marginalized in others. Almost every newspaper I looked at wouldn't allow the women's section writers, including the food editors, to even be in the newsroom. They would have to be on a separate floor. And the theory was that these women couldn't handle cursing. Oh. Which was very funny to me because I've read their letters and they curse just fine. <laughs> you would not have insulted them. These women were told where they belonged. And they knew they couldn't do 
almost anything. I mean, there was a few tokens. They had like one woman that would occasionally cover sports from a woman's perspective, but they made the most of where they were. And so well, I do think it's horrible, of course, the way that we were treated. They knew what they could get away with. For example, they were very, very connected to their readers. And they would often kind of push the envelope a little bit because they knew their readership would stand up for them. The management knew they could not get rid of these women. And most journalists tend to go from paper to paper throughout their career. What I thought was amazing about the food editors is they almost never left. So they could spend 30 or 40, even 50 years at one newspaper. Sometimes they would have generations of readers. They would have daughters or granddaughters and grandmothers who all read their sections and were very attached to it. There used to be a saying that a woman's name should only be in the newspaper three times, when she's born, when she gets married, and when she dies. That's what a good woman does. But I would argue that if your recipe gets published in the newspaper, that's a very good fourth reason. That's a great fourth reason. In our first season of the podcast, we had on some members of the Junior League of Tampa, which is a women's organization. And we were talking about their cookbook, the Gasparilla Cookbook. And the women, you said they only got to have their name in the newspaper three or four times. Writing a recipe wasn't one of them because you weren't, I wouldn't have been Dalia Cologne. I would have been Mrs. Braulio Cologne because right. that's my right. husband's name. So did they actually get their name in the paper? They had a mix, but it wasn't really the husband's name. The theory was that a woman wouldn't stay very long at the newspaper. So she would write under a pen name, which also makes it very hard to research, by the way. Oh, my gosh. A nightmare. <laughs> there was a woman up in Minnesota, and they gave her a pen name and registered it and trademarked it and everything because they said, you're going to get married, you're going to have kids, you're going to leave. And she was there for more than 40 years. Good for her. I know. <laughs> now, I have a question. I don't know if your research got into this, but the way recipes were written then, which wasn't that long ago, only like maybe two generations ago, is that how they're written today? For example, a lot of recipes I know 100 years ago assumed that everyone already knew how to cook, and so they weren't very specific. Well, you did have the sense of a woman should know how to cook because her mother or grandmother taught her. Right. So there was that aspect of it. They didn't have all the pictures we have today. Now, if you look at, say, a recipe blog, you see the narrative at the front. You don't see that as much. They were exact in terms of like a cup of this or a stick of butter kind of thing. Although it was always a full stick of butter back then. Oh, always. <laughs> they love their butter. A cup of lard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. There was, nutrition was not much of an issue. Um, but it, it, they were very specific. As one editor said, it's one thing to misspell someone's name in the newspaper. It's another thing to get a recipe wrong. I mean, you can make someone sick or embarrassed if people came to the house. There was one newspaper where they printed, I think it was for a cake, and they left out one of the ingredients. Their phone rang so much the next day, they just answered it by saying, a stick of butter. <laughs> you know, it, it, it was that much. Um, and they also learned that that was the morning paper and they were already baking by 10 a.m. So, you know, it did matter to the readership. And of course, the specifics of a recipe, they do mean a lot. Yeah. It is a pet peeve of mine when there's a an ingredient listed, but it's not ever mentioned in the directions. I'm like, well, when do I add the egg? Then? <laughs> I got this egg here. What do I do with it? The copy editors for the women's section had to prove they knew how to cook. 
Oh, I love, I have so much respect for these women. I know, they were really great. Support comes from Adelaide Interiors. Their design team can expertly manage every detail of your renovation and remodeling project from start to finish. From bathrooms to kitchens, appliances, cabinets, countertops, flooring, and coverings. More at Adelaide.com. Restaurant critics, a thing back then. And what was the interaction between someone writing for the women's section and someone reviewing restaurants? So that's probably the most complicated part of food reporting. Now, you were at one of the big, big newspapers. If you were at the LA Times, for example, you could cover what they used to call ethnic restaurants. So a local Chinese place, for example. But if there was a big steakhouse, it was covered in entertainment and a man wrote it. So there was that kind of nuance there. The very first food editor at the New York Times, who eventually came down here to be the food editor at the Lakeland Ledger, she was the food editor that hung around with James Beard. So yeah, so she was, you know, it was the New York Times. Of course, they actually had a lot of restaurants, even in the 40s and 50s compared to other places. And so these were the women like Jane, who created this system for being a restaurant critic. And then Craig Claiborne got hired after her, and all anyone remembers is Craig Claiborne. Oh, typical. Yeah. Craig Claiborne created the star system, you know, if it's four-star, five-star, whatnot. Jay Nickerson was the kind of restaurant reviewer that would go into the kitchen and watch how the chef cooked and then would explain to the readers, this is why this is the best dish you could order. It wasn't about overall trashing somebody or making them feel bad. She wanted her readers to have the best possible meal at a restaurant. Did you make any of the recipes that you found? Yes. Jane Nickerson wrote what's called the Jane Nickerson Florida Cookbook. And I love it because her name is above the title at a time when women didn't get that kind of respect. So yeah, she did actually have a few like little mini stories with her recipes. So her daughter, for example, went on a trip and came home and said, oh, mom, you've got to recreate this. You know, that, that sort of feeling. And these women in Florida have the luxury of such great ingredients, but a lot of readers from the Midwest that didn't know what you did with an avocado. And so it it was really interesting because they gave a lot of backstory to ingredients or, or fish, for example. And so that was really neat because they were more than just recipes and more than in some ways just food. It was, it was Florida folklore, I would say. Mm, what's your favorite recipe that you made? Jane Nickerson's mango key lime pie. Oh, I love it already. I might need to get that recipe from you. <laughs> yeah, I cooked through her book during uh, the beginning months of the pandemic. Perfect way to spend the time. Okay, briefly, how did you research this? Because what a nightmare to try and put this together, but the information is fascinating. <laughs> well, I had the luxury when I started this project that the Google News Archive was still alive. I mean, I spent days and days going through all sorts of uh, newspapers that had been scanned, many in Florida. And then Cicely Brownstone, who was the first food editor at the Associated Press, she actually gave her papers to NYU. 
including letters that she wrote back and forth. It was just so lovely. And there was an oral history in there too. And then in Missouri is the National Women in Media Collection, which includes three women's page editors from Florida who are all friends. And luckily they gave so, oh, and they kept everything. I mean, it was almost like reading a diary, the way they would write back and forth. They would keep each other's letters. And so I, I learned so much about them because they were also friends with food editors. There's a food editor who has some papers uh, down in Miami that I went through. There were some papers at the Matheson Library up in Gainesville. It was really luck, to be honest. Like I knew kind of where they might be. But uh, so, for example, these women always judged the Pillsbury Bake Off. And this was huge for women in the day if they made it that far. But it was the editors that judged them. So I found different archives that had the Pillsbury Bake Off because it would move from place to place. So I actually got to find them kind of backwards almost. It took several years, but oh my gosh, it was so much fun finding these random papers or recipes kind of all over the country. It really was, you know, just make your day to be like, this unknown person, now I know who she is. That's so cool. And honestly, I didn't ever think about this topic. I didn't know if I would find it interesting. It is fascinating. I have to get your book. How did you become interested in this topic? Where did you grow up? And did your hometown paper have a women's section? I'm from Milwaukee, uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I was born on the very last day of 1970. So I just was just a little too young to have seen a woman's page. I was a regular news reporter, cops and courts and education, public affairs reporting. I didn't even hear of the women's pages until I got to doc school. And when you go into grad school, you're kind of trying to find something that hasn't been written about before. And so I heard of these women's pages and I said, well, what was in them? I've never seen them. And professor after professor, journalism history book after journalism history book said, oh, it's just fluff. It's not important. And I thought, well, that's just fascinating that no one's bothered to even look at that. There's a saying in journalism school, if your mother says she loves you, check it out, right? And so that's what I found fascinating as a journalism historian is that no one bothered to look at these things. At some newspapers, they didn't even keep women's news in the archives. You used to have a library, you know, you'd go down and look at. And so, you know, I didn't know if I'd really ever find much, but it's been a great experience. I've gotten to email or speak with a few of the food editors and the women's page editor. I have a book coming out this week by one of the only editors I got to actually meet in person and talk to extensively. They have such great stories to tell. And again, it's just no part of history. I published my first work about these women in 2003, and no one's ever scooped me. <laughs> 20 years <laughs> later, we're still talking about it. Okay, so for the people who said it was fluff and not even worth archiving, make the case. Why was this women's work important and how did they lay the foundation for today's food journalists? I think it's worth reporting or discovering or researching what's in the women's pages because in some ways that was the only connection, particularly for middle class women and some upper class women, to anything in the public sphere, right? They were in the home limited access to each other. And so what they were reading in that women's section helped connect them. If they had a concern and there was a story, they understood that you're not alone. This really does matter. And I think that if you look at most newspaper histories, they don't include the women's pages at all. And I really do think they're embarrassed. I don't think they should be. I mean, it was wrong, but they made the most of it. 
you know, they were so connected to these home cooks. It's hard in the day of Google and the internet to imagine what it was like when you needed to find a recipe. There were women that were hired just to answer the phones, look through their files, and they would literally just mail for free a recipe that you're looking for. That was how connected they were. There was a woman's page editor in Omaha that said she could get up to 60 phone calls a day for women that just wanted to talk. Oh, it was that kind of connection. And so I think if we don't pay attention to those women, then I think we lose information about the journalists, but also the readers, because there was a relationship there that I think was really, really important. In fact, uh, just this past week, I was going through an obit of a regular, you know, everyday volunteer homemaker. And it mentioned in her obit that her recipe had been published in the newspaper. In summing up her life, right, it was that. And she's not alone. I see that on a semi-regular basis. In terms of the foundation they laid for the food section of the future, I think that they had a, a nice mix of hard news, soft news, and news that had fun. And I think that sometimes gets lost to the fact that while there's trends in food that are important, for example, we have, as a country, have fallen in and out of love with making bread. That was the first thing, well, the first thing is the pandemic. We're all going to make bread at home, you know, that, that sort of thing. Bacon never went out of style. Bacon has never lost its place. But there were stories about as we began to understand nutrition. I remember that there'd be sections like using phonics, say, this is how you would say carbohydrate. It was that strange of a term at the time. But also these women had so much fun. Oh, the parties they threw. It was really, really fun to see that they had sometimes a challenging career. Boy, they had fun. As a historian, there's nothing more joyful than what they achieved, but also that they had community, also with each other. They would meet regularly, particularly the women of South Florida. Those editors spent a lot of time together because, as many of them had said to me, it was about finding new kinds of food, but every Thanksgiving is someone's first turkey. So you've got to also go back to the basics. And some of the women got home phone calls. Jeannie Volts down in Miami, all day long on Thanksgiving, she would get calls to her home about how to make Thanksgiving dinner. It was almost like, you know, a food family, if you will. I love it. It was their internet. You know, I have a group text for my daughter's volleyball team moms, and and I have Facebook groups that I'm in for different topics, and th that was their version of it. This is so fascinating. I have to read well, this thanks. book, and I, I can't believe your recall, because I know you didn't just write the book yesterday. But before I let you go, I have to ask, what are you working on today, or what's another project that you would like to dig into? I'm currently working on that same time period, the history of advice columns. And they're fascinating. And some of those were, by the way, food advice, recipe exchange programs. So someone would write in and say, I had dinner at Disney and how can I replicate this kind of style? But they also told you how to raise your children. Some information was way ahead of its time. Some was a little scary. Um, but it, it was a, a similar voice of authority because I think you probably know Dear Abby is Nan Landers and those kind of folks. Every newspaper had their own. So it's also hyper-local kind of in that way. These women were almost always ahead of their time. Thank you so much. This is, Thank you. I just love learning about this. And again, it wasn't that long ago. That's what's really wild. Well, I'll share one last thing with you. It was interesting. One of the women I wrote about, that newspaper just had its 150th anniversary. And an editor from there contacted me because they didn't have anything in their archives about it. As we're chatting, this woman would have been at the newspaper beginning in, say, like, early 80s. 
And she said, it never occurred to me to talk to those women who have been in the women's pages because I figured it didn't matter. The thing they did mattered. And she said, it's interesting to me that it took one generation for her to be able to write about whatever she wanted. I thought, gosh, that really is true. You know, women have come so far at many newspapers. We do kind of forget the foundation that created us to get there. Yeah, you and me both. <laughs> Thank you so much. This was great. I love talking about these women, so I appreciate your time. Kimberly Voss teaches journalism at the University of Central Florida. She's the author of The Food Section, Newspaper Women and the Culinary Community. For a refreshing retro dessert that was a hit with newspaper readers, try Mango Pie from Jane Nickerson's Florida Cookbook. The recipe is on our website, thezestpodcast.com. I'm Zalia Colon. I produce The Zest with Andrew Lucas. Our digital team includes Alexandria Ebron and Chandler Balcom. The Zest is a production of WUSF Public Media. Copyright 2023, part of the NPR Network.